0: Assurance assists us in all godliness. It arms us against all temptations, it answers all objections, and will sustain us in all conditions. We need assurance. We need assurance. And it's a necessity in Christian counseling. When we are counseling our brothers and sisters in the faith, Either formally or informally, we need assurance. To remind them that God's, to remind them of God's love for them. That God loves them, that God has not forsaken them, that God cares for them and will take care of them. In those truths, the truth of God's love and his care for us is the assurance of adoption. Assurance of adoption is the title of my sermon this morning. The assurance of adoption, which is what we find in our text, God's love and adoption. And we find that God's love and adoption is not an acquired, not an acquired place in his home. Adoption is not acquired but received. An important point. You see, friends, we are chosen by excessive divine love, excessive divine love, which overflows in excess from us to our neighbor. And so it is true we love because He first loved us. And the assurance of adoption reminds us that God loves us. That's our point one that we're looking at this morning. will never leave us, point two. and takes care of us, point three. We are ruled by love. We are ruled by love. That is the truth of adoption. And the assurance of adoption assures us that God loves us. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The leading here is a passive verb. That is, we are led by. We are not led in the sense that we receive, but we are led in the sense that we receive. God leads us. He works in us, both to will and do according to His purposes. This is not an acquired work. It is a work of God that we Receive. He even says in the next verse, for you did not receive. Placing this passive in its proper context, it's not acquired. It's not by our works, but it's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit works. He leads. You see, the Father graciously adopts us by His Spirit, who then directs our whole life, body and soul, and life and in death. He moves the sinner, and He moves the sinner in a certain way. And in context, He moves the sinner in mortification. Look at verse 13, because we're kind of in a context. You always are in the Bible. Verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you hear works principle in this verse? There's a works principle here. If, the conditional, if you live, if you live a certain way, then you will live eternally. In this verse, in it's outside of its context, as a proof text, could and might cause us to think that eternal life comes by works. And I can hear the moralist even now saying, Aha, see here, if you do these certain things, then you'll live eternally. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling says the moralist, says the legalist in his proof text. But the problem with proof text is this, context. (laughs) Context will always rob the proof texter of the text that he lives and dies by. If you live, you will live a certain way. You will live eternally. And if that's the truth, in the end, the virtue of fear... The virtue of fear that causes anxiety is our motivation and the proper motivation for good works. Many legalists tell us this. And so they place the threat of hell always before us, always before us. And therefore, virtues like faith, hope, and love spring from the fear of hell, apparently. But in my mind, it seems like these virtues, faith, hope, and love, cannot spring from the fear of hell because these are selfless acts. For the fear of hell really produces selfishness. Selfishness is the virtue of fear because you want to get out of the threat. You want to leave the threat behind. It's a selfish act. You want to escape this horrible threat. And so what is the answer? Well, it's the context. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and do according to his purposes. So we find in the context itself, this is no Arminian text, this is a Reformed text. And they always are. This is a text on God's sovereign love. God who works in us. God who causes even our sanctification. It's monergistic. For you theologically minded people who love big fancy words, it's God who works both in us will and do. So the apparent works principle in verse 13 is answered in verse 14, for all who are led. It seems like it's a works principle on our behalf, but then we see verse 14, no, it's the Spirit. (laughs) The Spirit leads us in this direction, this mortification. And then the virtues of faith, hope, and love do follow. Because when we see it in its proper context, This sanctification is a rule of love rather than fear, which makes thankfulness the Christian virtue. And so, Christian good works are an exercise of gratitude, not compulsion, but faith, hope, and love. And so, the apparent works principle in verse 33 is answered in verse 14. The Holy Spirit works in us both to will and do according to God's purposes, which one of His purposes is the mortification of sins, the mortification of flesh, putting to death your sins. And sons of God are there those who mortify the flesh. If you mortify the flesh, you're led by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, you're sons of God. And therefore, good works are necessary. They're necessary for those who God loves. I'm speaking a lot about love. That's the point I'm on, that God loves us. But you don't really see love in this text. Pastor, where's the love at? <laughs> well, the love is found in the expression, sons of God. That's an Old Testament expression. For who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's an Old Testament expression. Israel is called the sons of God. Why was Israel called the sons of God? Two wise. Why? <laughs> Why was Israel the sons of God? Because God promised to be their father. He promised to be a father who takes care of his own. He promised to be a father who would provide and protect. And that's why they were sons of God. Because God loves. Now the second why. Why did he love? Why did he love such as Israel? Is it because they were such great people? He adopted them because they were so awesome and glorious. Full of virtues like godliness and holiness and righteousness. No. If you know the Old Testament, it's apparent to know. And so the answer, why does God love and protect Israel? Why does God love and protect his people? The only answer is love. If the moralist is right, the answer is because of us. If we're right, the answer is always love. It's a better answer. Love. So it turns out the expression sons of God is one of love. It turns out that the love of God moves us to good works. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one one word, love, love. The summary of the law, Matthew 22, love of God and love of neighbor. And here we find the love of Christ. God gave his son to love. In our place. Who in love was obedient. Christ obedient. To the point of death. Even death on a cross for you to satisfy the fact that you are prone to hate God. Prone to hate neighbor. That's your inclination. But he fulfills the rule of love. This rule of love for us by dying on the cross. Sacrificially dying for you and I. And then also, raising again from the dead and pouring out this Holy Spirit who gives us a new rule, a rule of love, Galatians 5.18. But if you're led by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, who wants to be led by the Spirit? Y'all raise our hands. Figuratively, because we're a Reformed church. <laughs> I'm raising it in my heart. <laughs> I don't want to get church discipline because I'm raising my hands. No, I'm just kidding. If you're led by the Spirit... Paul says, then you're not under the law. Interesting. We're not under the law. Freedom, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> Eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow, we die. No. If we're controlled by the rule of love, we can truly love for the first time. And we can truly obey the law for the first time. This is what it means to be children of God, to be ruled by the gospel in such a way that we're ruled by love. Love controls us. Love controls us so much. Guess what? We love God. And we will love neighbor. in such a love that we'll even forsake ourselves. It's a weird ethic that the Christian holds. The forsaking of self. Turning the other cheek. This ethic of love that we share. Or that we don't share with the world. The world might say that ethic is insane. Turning the other cheek and... Loving and praying for your enemies and praying that Saul's would come out of and Paul's would come out of the world that hates us and we hate. But we want and we desire salvation of all and so we're willing to even forsake ourselves. It's because we're moved by love and not fear. We're not afraid of what God can do with the wicked. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear... The spirit of slavery here is works righteousness. Do more because you're not doing enough and so forth. And there comes fear because of the works principle. You see, the virtue of works principle, the virtue of the works principle is fear, at least for us. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who is obedient. There is none who can earn and acquire sonship, and acquire adoption. Hey, look at me. woohoo, over here, God. The righteous one over here, You might want me. (laughs) No. We must fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom and faith. We fear God will fear this self-love that we all have. It is a slavery of self-love, self- gratification which creates fear because the human spirit is enslaved to sin. The self-gratification, it's selfishness. That's what we see in the world. Prone, as the Heidelberg says, prone to hate God and our neighbor. It's so, you see it so much in our self, the me and the self-generation. We all want, we're focused on self. But God breaks this enslavement. He makes us his own and he gives us the Holy Spirit who leads us, the sons and daughters as a family, to love. And the assurance of adoption reminds us that God is with us, our second point. So God loves us, that's the assurance of adoption, and that God is with us. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, you fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. We belong to God, we're His children. As sons, we're children of God, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says here, the opposite of fear is adoption. That's it. The opposite of fear. Fear of falling away. Fear of not being right with God. It's adoption. Adoption was also a privilege of Israel as a nation. Listen to Romans 9 4. They are all Israelites, Paul writes, and to them belong the adoption. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, adoption. They were sons of God through adoption. They were not natural-born children. No, but God chose them to be his own. Which brings forth the other why. Why? Why? Why did God choose this people? Their apparent holiness and righteousness. Why adoption? Dear Bible, turn with me to Ephesians. You can listen along. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Actually, we'll start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the people of God. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be a holy and blameless people before him. In love, here's the answer, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why adoption? Not because of our holiness and apparent awesomeness. Oh, it must be because we're American. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it's love. 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 Is the answer. Because of God's love. God's love for us. And because of his love for us. He has chosen us to be his own. And he will never forsake. He will never turn his back. He will be with us for all time and eternity. Back to Romans 8. For we receive the spirit of adoption by sons. But we are so near to God that we can cry to him, Abba, Father. The verb to cry here, to cry out, is a verb of prayer. You see the same word in Psalm 3, verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried to the Lord in prayer. I cried out to the Lord, the psalmist says, and he heard me on his holy hill. It's important to realize when we cry out to God that he is far above us, he is on a holy hill. Far above us. He's holy, holy, holy. Transcendent. Important to realize, especially in our culture, we're losing the transcendence of God. He's no longer holy, he's homeboy. And in the praise song, he sounds like he's boyfriend. No, He's far above. We we cannot lose the transcendence of God who is majestic and righteousness and holy. He is absolute. He is almighty. Far above us. You see that transcendence lost in our culture in many ways. Not only in our worship. Worship is so eminent today in the modern evangelical church. You turn in. You don't turn out. And you sing these songs... It sounds like you've lost your boyfriend and he's returned to you. They're like, Jesus is my boyfriend music. It really is. We, we lose the transcendence in our culture. You see it in modern, modern translations even of this word uh, 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 Abba. It's an Aramaic word. It actually would have been the word that Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. Because he taught them in Arabic our Abba, who art in heaven. But today this word is translated by these modern commentators as the word daddy. You might have heard that. This is daddy. and Daddy in the American egalitarian sense of our homes, where we children call our parents, our little ones, you know, my children call me daddy. This is an anachronism. In the ancient world, in Rome, the children didn't call their dad daddy in this been since so There was a lot of fear and reverence in the home of the father. Matter of fact, in the ancient world, in Rome, the father had the right until the child was out of the home. The father always carried the right to put his child to death at any time. It's crazy. They had that right. There's a sense of fear and respect. Even maybe some of you who are even a little older remember that fear and respect that you had for your father. There's always this, you know, in the old days, kind of a certain fear and respect of father. Way more so in the ancient world. So this is an egalitarian modern anachronism to say, no, this means daddy in our sense of our terms. No, he's he's still father in heaven. The Jews, to combat any apparent daddy issues that might result in praying this, would always pray our Father who art in heaven to remind us he's far above us, transcendent. But at the same time, as I speak of the transcendence of God, he's almighty, let us not lose grasp of the sense that he's immediate and intimate and that he is near. The eminence of God is proper. But here's the thing, we must hold these the two virtues of God's transcendence and eminence in harmony together and when we hold them in harmony together, it is a concert of grace that we hear and we come to a throne of grace and we are praying to a God who's absolute, who can do all things, who holds all power, who holds the world in his very hand, who's a consuming fire. We come to that one who can do all things because he's almighty. But we also come come to one who's a father and who is faithful to do all things for us. It's a fine line, the eminence and the transcendence of God and we must hold both together. So we come to an amazing and almighty God who's a faithful father. So we come to him in our prayers. We realize that God is with us. And so we can pray to our Father because of adoption. But we come always on His terms because He's almighty. That's why we are taught to pray a certain way. We don't just pray like we want to pray. And I see a tendency in the modern world to not even pray as we're taught anymore. As I've served with others that aren't Reformed, I've heard in prayer often praying to an innocuous, or not innocuous, but a almost a... Uh, just a, a deist God, God. We pray, we pray, God, oh God. We don't just pray to God, we pray to God, our Father, pray to Father, pray to our God, Father. Another thing we don't do, we don't pray to Jesus. You gotta return to church, you know. Dear Jesus, we never are commanded to pray to Jesus, we pray to our Father. In Jesus' name, there's a certain formula. Reminds us that we're Trinitarian. There's a proper way to approach our Father in heaven, in Jesus' name. We come to him on his terms. The Holy Spirit leads us, and the Holy Spirit leads us to a throne of grace. A throne of grace in prayer. That he might lead us to the knowledge that we are children of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Theologians call this the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. We all know and feel as Christians that we are Christians. Maybe the only answer, how do you know you're a Christian? I just know I'm a Christian. (laughs) I know I'm a Christian. But we must not also forget at the same time that this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is a knowledge that we receive by faith. And faith is always something outside of us that is extended to us externally. So even the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is not some subjective uh, thing that we receive, it's something we receive. We don't acquire it because it's in us and we just have it. It's not a work, it's something we receive externally. And so, even the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is is not a subjective work, but it's something that God does outside of us. And you see that in the in the pronouns here, the plural pronouns. It's us. You see it in the expression "sons of God." You see it in the expressions "inheritance," a family. You know, we're all together privately, our own, but plurally together as one. And we come together as a church, and we receive a means of grace. You know, as I've been saying week in and week out for the last several weeks. Our faith is is personal, but not private. The faith is personal, but not private. It's something that we all share and have with Christ and his adoption. And we are his sons and his daughters, but it's not a private thing. Because we're a family, so it's a thing that we must have together and share together and serve one another. And then this love that God has and he gives to us personally, we share publicly with each other. all these means and the sacraments and the word and all these things, together we have this inner testimony. And the spirit bears witness to our spirits through these means. These means of grace and the fact that we are a family and called to love and serve one another, called and worship and we receive the benefits. And you really see that, that plurality and that necessity of public adoption in verse 17. And if children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see, the Spirit causes our prayer where we find the presence of God and it's a glorious presence, the inheritance. And it's a glorious inheritance. Inheritance is itself an Old Testament expression. Inheritance for Israel, the expression for them, is now our inheritance. And we find here that all who are led by the Spirit of Christ are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Having delivered up his son for us, God will with him freely give us all things. Romans 8 32. Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians that all believers, he says, all things are yours. The world, things present, things to come, they're all yours. And we find here that all believers, before and after Christ, receive a kingdom of God alike. We all receive Christ, we all receive that God is put under Christ's feet. We receive a church, His body. We receive the fullness of Him that fills all things. It is the hope and privilege of every believer to be filled unto all the fullness of God. Together, as a whole, we receive this love of God, a divine love in excess that causes us to excessively love others. The Spirit who clothed Christ in our flesh and consummated glory now clothes us with Christ, and with Christ is the key to this glory. And you see it here even in our text. Provided we take up our cross and follow Him, right? Provided we suffer with Him. Provided we suffer with Christ. Provided we take up our cross. You see, the glory here, the inheritance, is not earthly riches. Because earthly riches, friends, are poverty. Earthly riches are poor. These are heavenly riches. Those who come to faith for prosperity, they're no better off than those who come to faith to flee hell. It's both selfishness. It's a self-love. Coming to glory is an act of the flesh, self-love. And the glory we seek is the glory of the cross. To have the riches and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, to be prosperous in faith, hope, and love. This prosperity wants to be given away. This prosperity will give its life for Christ and will suffer with Christ. Will be selfless. It's power of the cross. The desire to take up your cross and service to God and neighbor. This is the assurance of adoption, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death. to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. What is that, children? Not only that, but the Holy Spirit is given to us. The Holy Spirit who watches over us in a certain way that not a hair will fall from our head without our will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for what, children? Our salvation, because I belong to God by His Holy Spirit. It makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's adoption. And if you're adopted into the Reformed faith, that's your confession. It's Heidelberg one. And so assurance of adoption is our only comfort in life and in death. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.